Have you ever wanted to just get away? Whether it's due to the daily friction of life or a particular season of difficulty, I suspect that everyone experiences times of just wanting to escape. Now, escapism has a negative reputation, and justly so in many cases. However, the misuse of escape doesn't invalidate the need for escape in the right circumstances. Escape, you see, is a response to danger. Not to discomfort, not to boredom, not to sadness, not to responsibility, but danger. There are some situations where escape isn't just a good idea. It's an imperative, because the alternative is unthinkable. What does this have to do with the Bible? More than you might think. I invite you to spend the next few minutes with me in looking at what the Bible has to say about the dangers of life, about the things we need to escape from, as well as what we should escape to. You see, we need both the from and the to, if we're to successfully find the way of escape. I've been thinking for a while about a pitfall that threatens a lot of people these days. You you know what a pitfall is, don't you? It's a trap where the ground is made to look solid. But in fact, under a thin cover lies a deep hole, sometimes with sharpened sticks in the bottom. Uh, The unwary animal or traveler uh, treads on the cover, falls through into the hole, and, in the case of the sharpened stick option, ends up impaled. Nasty, I agree. And while it is highly unlikely for any of us to encounter a literal pitfall in our everyday lives, one figurative pitfall is claiming hearts and minds with alarming success. I'm talking about the bitterness that can be caused by nostalgia. If you aren't sure what I mean, I'll try to describe it for you. I have often heard people say that, oh, the world was a much better place 50, 60, 70 years ago. And this assertion is often made in a spirit almost of resentment, as if the speaker has been cheated of something. I have no doubt that our present era is a difficult one. But I have qualms about the attitude that exalts either the mid-20th century or indeed any previous era as an ideal. As I may have mentioned before, I'm a history nut. That means I've learned rather too much about previous eras than is good for me, I suppose. And one thing I come across again and again in my historical studies is this lament about how the current era is so much worse than the one that went before it. I have found this to be a recurring theme from, let's say, at least the 18th century onwards. Possibly, it has been in circulation since Adam and Eve looked at Cain and Abel and thought, seriously, what is wrong with these children? Why can't they get along? I'm sure even they thought back to their pre-parenting days with fondness. You might say to me then, well, yes, but the 21st century, particularly the 20s, are really much worse. 
and you might point to the many successive and concurrent catastrophes, social, medical, environmental, as your evidence. Well, I, in return, might remind you that I've already conceded that this is a particularly difficult era. And then I might go so far as to point you toward Ecclesiastes 7.10, where the teacher says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You see, the real problem with this bitter nostalgia about how much better the former days were has little to do with the difficulty level of the current era. I really like how the Matthew Henry's commentary remarks on this verse. He says, It is folly to cry up the goodness of former times so as to derogate from the mercy of God to us in our own times, as if former ages had not the same things to complain of that we have, or if perhaps in some respects they had not, yet as if God had been unjust and unkind to us in casting our lot in an iron age compared with the golden ages that went before us. This arises from nothing but fretfulness and discontent and an aptness to pick quarrels with God himself. God has been always good, and men always bad. And if in some respects the times are now worse than they have been, perhaps in other respects they're better. It's a very old-fashioned way to say, to glorify the past and denounce the present is in certain ways to pick a fight with God's mercies to us in our current difficulties, as if God had cheated us by not paving our road with ease from beginning to end. Uh, Matthew Henry's phrase, fretfulness and discontent, is exactly the bitterness I mentioned earlier. Uh, in another part of his commentary on this verse, Mr. Henry talks about how poorly we judge the past, as far as to say we are practically strangers to the past and as good as blind to the present. And I've noticed people often remember their own pasts selectively. Just as an example, Depending on whether your natural bent runs toward optimism or pessimism, you might be more inclined to remember more of the good or more of the bad memories, respectively. I kind of suspect that's why so many optimists are struggling so desperately right now, but that's another topic for another day. As for me, I look at my own past, and if I'm honest, I know perfectly well that the only advantage I had 30 or 40 years ago was my ignorance. I grew up in a sheltered environment, exposed pretty much only to those genteel sins that people don't take seriously. You know, like gossip, and contempt, and vanity. Uh, many a time these past few years, as I get better acquainted with the world outside, I have heartily wished that I had never got better acquainted with humanity than I was in my rather isolated youth, back when I believed in all naivete that if I could only get out into the wider world, I would finally find a place to fit in and feel at home. Of course, now that I've experienced that wider world, I'm just more acutely aware than ever that I don't belong here, that I'm not at home. And you know, I don't consider that entirely a bad thing. What have I learned in 40-some years? Huh? 
first that Matthew Henry was right. God has been always good, and men always bad. The fact that it shows more clearly right now suggests to me that some kind of restraint has been removed. Again, nothing worth being shocked and appalled over. It is a mystery, but not a surprise. Paul said to the Thessalonian church that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. I am not trying to be apocalyptic here, but the scriptural principle has always been that even God's enemies are not exempt from his control, that he permits them to go so far and no farther, and that he will deal with them as their actions deserve in his own time, not ours. And the New Testament writers all looked forward to a time when the days would become intensely bad, when every restraint on evil would be removed. And they anticipated those days, not with fear so much as with trust, that this meant that the Lord's return was just that much nearer, and that every experience of suffering they endured for the name of Jesus just proved their faith and their hope in Jesus genuine. Because the principle holds true, they could advance without being paralyzed by fear or embittered by nostalgia for the good old days. Peter puts it this way, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It isn't for us a matter of what can we do to reverse this terrible trend. Rather, it's a matter of what sort of life should we live as we ride out this newest wave of trouble, as the promised destruction looms nearer and nearer. We have business to conduct that might actually be made simpler by the fact that the mask is being torn away from human nature's innate tendency toward ugliness. And sometimes it's easier to persuade people that a decision needs to be made between one side and another when the middle ground has fallen away completely. But remember, I said simpler. I did not say easier. As by and large, the body of Christ in the Western Hemisphere is flabby and out of condition for fighting. Things were better. In fact, they were too easy for too long. And I think this deceived many into confusing mere cultural norms for spiritual health. Now, I, I can't help thinking back to those 17th century Christians who set forth from Europe into the wilderness intending to find an escape from persecution for their faith. Now, I admire the sheer dogged toughness of those believers, but 
Did they really believe they could build an earthly kingdom for God? Now, some people seem to believe that's what they were after, and that that's what we ought to be doing now. But I can't help thinking that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, though, I, I, I don't believe he was talking about an earthly kingdom as we would think of it. Otherwise, why should he go about the business the way he did, with the cross of all things as the culmination of his ministry? Why ascend to heaven and send the Holy Spirit in his place to scatter his disciples to the ends of the earth? But if he meant, your kingdom come, your will be done in each disciple's life as it is in heaven, then it makes more sense to me out of what follows. The kingdom we build, we build with our lives, with our everyday choices and our words and our actions. God's kingdom is present in the person of every believer, empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey our King. And it's present now, not in some idealized era in the past. Now, it is good and healthy to recall memories of happy times. In fact, that's one of the ways we bond with one another, through the sharing of pleasant reminiscences. But don't start to idealize the past. It just makes you stressful and resentful and even more discontented with the reality you have. Don't, don't pick a fight with God for setting you a difficult test to prove your faith. Thank him for his mercies, because <laughs> things could always get worse, and probably will soon enough. Ask him for the strength and the wisdom to pass this test to his glory. And then do your best to encourage your fellow pilgrims further along the narrow road. We are all of us, together, his kingdom on earth. We cannot do this on our own. We were never meant to do this single-handed. But together, in the strength God provides, we can accomplish any work he might set before us. I just want to thank you for listening. And if you're interested in delving a little deeper into the book of 2 Peter, I'd like to encourage you to check out my devotional commentary, Reminder. It breaks down this short letter into nine sessions for personal or small group study. It's available now on Amazon in paperback or Kindle ebook format. The title is Reminder. Now back to the show.